It's dark. Wonder where I've heard that one from before, right, Tim? That's right. That's right. We are here again on the Now It's Dark movie podcast, and kind of in these uncertain Corona times, these coronavirus times. I hope everyone listening to this is doing well and is staying healthy. Yeah, it's spreading across the globe. It's been ravaging Italy. I know they're kind yeah. of on lockdown right now. Yeah, it's very uncertain times. That's right, and uh, it's been a, a lot of. It's been really interesting to follow how it has been affecting all the movie festivals and whatnot. That's right. Uh, I know some movies have been delayed. Yeah. It's kind of up in the air right now. Uh, but you know, our podcast is called Now It's Dark, and there is a reason to that. We've never really gone into why it's called Now It's Dark, and I think that was your idea. It was, and. It was actually inspired by a film. We, I, I know that we've been talking for a while about what to call this podcast. Mm-hmm. We, we talked about a number of different names. And we kind of agreed, like, well, now it's dark. It's maybe not the perfect name, but it's the name that we're going to choose. Yeah. Because I think it, it works on several levels. You know, it's movies are often watched in the dark. You know, you turn down the lights. There's this kind of movie-going experience that, that relates to just kind of turning off the lights and, and settling into this this kind of uh, theatrical experience or home-viewing experience. But it also relates, I think, to this idea of social decline, mm. things getting worse. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, you know, not only- Social with entropy? <laughs> yeah, in some ways. Yeah. I, I, this sense that things are, are uncertain and, and there's kind of a darkness in the air yeah. you know, that a lot of our movie discussions get at. Right, and especially we started doing that with Twin Peaks. Right. Right, that's when we started this podcast. It was largely because of David Lynch's third season of Twin Peaks. And actually the the name itself comes from the movie we're going to talk about today. That's Blue Velvet. Yeah. A line that's uttered by Dennis Hopper on several occasions, now it's dark. Yeah. And in the film itself, I think it represents moments when Frank Booth is really unleashing his inner demons, mm-hmm. you know, when something bad is, is really about to happen. And yeah, like I said, I, I think it just has a lot of resonance. Yeah, and it's a it's a good line for a really strange villain. Right. And I'm looking forward to talking all about this today. Me too. I, I wanted to start off by just asking about your initial reactions to mm-hmm. Blue Velvet, because neither one of us, I think, were old enough to see it when it first came out in 1986. I wasn't alive. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that would do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, I think, two years old or yeah. one years old. Um, it, so we were way too young to see it when it first came out. We weren't around to kind of gauge its initial you know, reaction or the initial reaction when it first came out in theaters. Yeah. So we ended up seeing it later. Uh, I'm guessing not in theaters. Yeah. Probably on, on you know DVD or or whatnot. Right. Yeah. No, I didn't see it in theaters. I'd I'd love to though. That, that'd be that would be one that if it were to be in theaters, if it were to come back to theaters, I'd go see it. See, I actually watched it for the first time in a pan and scan VHS copy. A pan and scan? That's where they 
they format the screen like a, they take a wide image. Mm-hmm. This is an anamorphic image, and they cut off the sides to make it fit in the square TV. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. So you get parts of the image missing. Yeah, and, yeah. and in order, if they if there's essential information in the wide screen, they'll just pan over to it so that you can see it. <laughs> yeah. So that's why it's called pan and scan. Right. And so I saw it in an old pan and scan VHS copy. Uh-huh. Uh, that was my first viewing experience. I did end up getting a chance to see it in theaters later. Oh, good. Actually, here in Korea. How old were you when you first saw Blue Velvet? I was in university. I believe I was probably, I'm going to guess 19. Okay. Yeah. How, yeah. how about you? I've seen it a few times now. First time I saw it, I must have been, I was a lot older, 26, 27. Right. Yeah. I remember just being blown away by it. I mm-hmm. mean, at that point in my life, it, it may have been one of the most shocking movies I'd seen. And probably to this day remains one of the most shocking movies I've seen. I developed a really almost unhealthy obsession with it for a while. Yeah. Uh, I know after I, I first watched that old VHS copy at my friend's place, I asked to borrow it. And I think I watched it every night for a week. Oh, wow. Just because yeah. there was something about the movie. I, I, I'd never seen such a mixture of of just incredibly uh, you know disturbing imagery mixed with this real sort of, um, I guess, nostalgic, uh, you know, the Roy Orbison music, the, the small, small town, suburbia. Yeah, suburban yeah. feel of the film. It, it was such a bizarre and, and confounding mix that I just found myself so drawn to the mystery of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is a mystery that you can really dive into. How, how did you first react to it when you saw it? Well, I was mostly surprised by how normal it all was, as far as David Lynch is concerned. Now, you, you mean normal in the narrative sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, it is just a, it is a pretty straightforward mystery story. Yeah. In, in many ways. And that is something I remember thinking is, I, I'm surprised by how straightforward a narrative this is. But I do remember just thinking that this is still so David Lynch, just the look of the movie. Yeah. And some of the camera angles and things like that. And just um, the way that he stages his his sets and the way that he, he gets, he, he frames the shots and things like that. There is just still something very unquestioningly David Lynch about it too. So, I mean, it's it's a bit different than what he normally does, but it's also very much in the same vein. It, it's in many ways the most accessible yeah. David Lynch film because I, it is narratively, you know, fairly straightforward. Yeah, I'd say maybe it might be a good first David Lynch to watch. I would agree. Yeah. Because, you know, with a razor head, that's a little, I guess, darker. It's it's a little bit less linear in terms of the plot. Yeah. And, you know, with other films like, say, Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway, they're much more kind of narratively confusing yeah. You know, it, they're not as easy to digest just on a purely narrative level. Right. And Twin Peaks is a long investment. But if you watch Fire Walk with me with no context, you're not going to get it at all. Right. So Blue Velvet could be a very good starting point for for anyone looking to get into David Lynch seriously. Yeah, because it also, you know, has that that obsession with Americana mm-hmm. that that is so essential to Lynch's cinema. Whereas a movie like, say, The Elephant Man, which is also fairly straightforward, it, it lacks that you know, kind of American context. Yeah. And the straight story, which is also fairly narratively straightforward, is it, it lacks the darkness 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, of of Blue Velvet. So I think Blue Velvet might be the essential David Lynch film in many ways, and also the most accessible. It also comes with some of the most interesting stories, you know, some of the most interesting behind-the-scenes things as far as the the reception and things like that. I mean, there's just a lot to talk about with Blue Velvet. And it's so hard to really get a handle on the film, on, on how to analyze it. I mean, it's a film that seems to suggest ways to analyze it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it seems to be charged with a lot of Freudian you know, meaning. Yeah. Uh, there seem to be a lot of symbolic references, but it's a film where when you, when you actually, you know, try to get a handle on what's actually going on, it seems to slip out of your, your grasp. And I think that's why I was so obsessed with it for so long. There seems to be this essential and enduring mystery at the heart of the film that I can't get at. I can't really get a handle on, but yet it remains almost obsessively compelling to me. Yeah. Because it seems to say something essential about America and about America's state, not only in the 1980s, but but moving forward. It kind of becomes this, this touchstone that movies like Twin Peaks or the Twin Peaks series and movies like Mulholland Drive will, will kind of add farther layers of interpretation upon. It seems to be kind of like a, a landmark not only for Lynch, but also for for kind of commentary on America mm-hmm. and, and the state of American identity. So there's so much to talk about here. Uh, where do you want to start? Yeah, let's just start from uh, from the very beginning. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with with David Lynch, he was born in kind of a like a, a golden age of America. There's a good line from from The Simpsons where Ned Flanders says something along the lines of, "I wish I lived in the America that only exists in the minds of Republicans," <laughs> and I think they always sort of look back to this immediate post-World War II time, like 1940s and 1950s, right? And I think that's important for the context of things like Blue Velvet, right, and Twin Peaks and such. He was born in 1946, and if you're thinking of the American dream and the white picket fence and things like that, that's probably those those times. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, the post-war boom. Yeah. Because, I mean, immediately after the end of World War II, David Lynch is born. Yeah, exactly. And so if this is sort of the world that he grew up in, we might see how that affects uh, the world he presents in Blue Velvet. But uh, Lynch attended the Boston School of the Museum of the Fine Arts and then the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, which is where he made his first film. It's a really strange short film called Six Men Getting Sick. Yeah, almost more of an installation piece than a film. Yeah, it's a, it's an animated thing <laughs> Yeah, where it, it's just... I don't even know how to describe it. It's just... It suggests that there are these six figures getting sick and it happens six times. <laughs> it's very much a bridge between his painting and his later film work. That's right, because that was his original aspiration was becoming a painter. Uh, eventually, he would go on to the AFI Conservatory, which at the time was the American Film Institute's Center for Advanced Film Studies, and that's where he made Head. It was his first feature back in 1977. Not received favorably, in large parts because some people just thought, well, the only thing that's making this so-called horror is just this weird-looking baby. Yeah. And there's not much else. But now it's it's sort of looked on much more favorably. When it became kind of a midnight movie, I think yeah. that's that's where it gained its success is on the midnight movie circuit, whereas, you know, 
as far as the critical establishment was concerned, it was it was pretty weird. It was too out there. Yeah, I know Lynch had a really hard time getting it into film festivals, and yeah, it was really the the midnight movie circuit, and and you know advocates like John Waters, right, who helped make the movie the success that it eventually became. And then he would go on to do a little bit more of a like we said accessible film up next with the Elephant Man that was received very well, and is still to this day regarded as one of the best movies of the eighties. And it was actually produced by Mel Brooks. Yeah, Mel Brooks, of all people, brought Lynch on board to this project. And I think it was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. It was uh, Best Picture, uh, but, you know, Lynch didn't produce it, so that wasn't his own nomination. Right. But he did get a nomination for both Best Director and Best Screenplay. Uh, So, you know, not bad for a second effort. No, right. (laughs) For a movie that's so different from Eraserhead in many ways. Right. Um, Unfortunately, 1984's Dune was a critical and box office failure with critic Roger Ebert naming it one of the worst movies of the year. In fact, I think he did say it was the worst movie of the year. But Ebert's an interesting one because he never really liked Lynch up until about Mulholland Drive. I think Mulholland Drive was the first time Ebert liked a Lynch film. Yeah, he had a very conflicted, we might say, relationship with Lynch's films. Yeah. And and really, if you look at the early films, just a distaste for Lynch's style of filmmaking. Uh, But Lynch eventually also just disowned the film completely, saying that this is the movie that he sold out on, right? And he just said he should never have made this movie in the first place, but he was already in the planning stages of making the sequels. He was working on Dune Messiah. Apparently, he wanted to make sequels that were much more kind of contained mm-hmm. and, and less expansive and just out of his control. Because I think the production really kind of, he lost control of it. Yeah. And I think there were so many people involved uh, that he really wasn't able to, to imprint his own personal vision on it. And there was also talk that a lot of the the reschedules and, and delays involved with the movie were put on by by the movie studio. And so when critics were not able to watch it on schedule and it kept getting rescheduled, that sort of put this hostility into the critics' minds before they even saw the movie. Oh, okay. So it kind of poisoned them to the film. Yeah, that's right. There are even some cuts of the film that replace David Lynch's name on the director credit with Alan Smithy. And if you don't know what Alan Smithy is, Alan Smithy does not exist. Alan Smithy is a pseudonym of shame. Right. If you are so disgusted with what this project became, you can opt to have your name put on as Alan Smithy. And so if you see a movie directed by Alan Smithy, does it mean it's terrible? I mean, maybe, maybe not, but it definitely means that the director was not happy with it. I do not take credit for this movie. Now, it's worth mentioning that this film has gotten somewhat of a critical reappraisal. I mean, it does have its advocates. I know Slavoj Zizak, for example, really likes the film Mm -hmm. and has praised it. And I think it's certainly not as bad as being the worst movie of 1984. It's not Lynch's strongest film. And it's hard to overestimate the impact it had on him personally. I mean, he said that that after the failure of Dune, he, he was left feeling sick and devastated. And it just kind of destroyed him for a while. And I think he wanted to turn away from from making this big-budget sort of epic production to something more personal. He actually drew on ideas that he first had as far back as 1973. Mm -hmm. I mean, Blue Velvet and, and the ideas that inspired it had been around for a long time. and It was very personal to him. 
Blue Velvet began with just a feeling in the title. It was inspired, of course, by Bobby Vinton's 1963 hit, which itself is a cover of Tony Bennett's 1951 original. And Lynch actually didn't like the song initially, but he says it eventually grew in him. It married with, quote, green lawns at night and a woman's red lips seen through a car window. And also the words, quote, and I can still see Blue Velvet through my tears. It was something about these elements and what it inspired in him that that drew him back to the song. Yeah, and I think it's probably a, a good decision because when you think of David Lynch, in a way, I kind of maybe agree with David Lynch when he says, I should never have made Dune. It just seems like for what he does and what his niche is and what his his interests are, the uh, whole idea of doing Dune just seems almost too mainstream and too big and and just too too pop for him. Yeah, I think he really succeeds when he, he does something on a much more personal level where yeah. he's given the artistic freedom to make things his own way. He would later connect these ideas that, that emanated out of the song Blue Velvet with a particular fantasy he had of sneaking into a girl's room at night, watching her and witnessing a clue to a murder mystery, as well as the idea of finding a severed ear in a field. <laughs> so Lynch always talks about ideas. Yeah. And these tend to be kind of like visual ideas or, or you know, situations that inspire intrigue or mystery that lead to something. He also drew in his experiences growing up in small-town America, which you've mentioned before, where he spent a lot of his time in the woods. I mean, his father was a research scientist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So I think just living in small-town America and, and, you know, living close to the woods inspired a lot of this sort of small-town imagery Mm -hmm. of Blue Velvet. Right. I mean, the town is called Lumberton. Obviously, the woods plays a big part in the, the kind of image and aesthetic of the town. And I would also say that his personal experiences found their way into this film in a big way. I mean, he has said that when he was little, both him and his brother saw a naked woman walking down the street at night crying in a dazed state. Mm-hmm. I mean, that image itself is such a, a, a an essential part of the film, and that comes from his own experiences. Yeah, and it's quite quite traumatic, really. Very traumatic. You know? And I think trauma would play a huge part in in the film itself. Uh, when it came to casting the film, it's rather surprising actually to learn that all the main characters were not his first choice, apparently. Hmm. I will qualify that by saying that Kyle MacLachlan was his first choice for, for Jeffrey Beaumont. Right, because they worked together in Dune right. previously. But uh, for Frank Booth, he actually was considering Michael Ironside, Harry Dean Statton, and apparently Stephen Burkoff. For the mm. role. They all rejected it. So interesting. he went with Dennis Hopper. Well, that's interesting because he would later go on to to work with Harry Dean Stanton mm-hmm. in, in Twin Peaks. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's hard to imagine, you know, Michael Ironside in the role of Frank Booth. I just, yeah, it's ridiculous. For Dorothy Valens, uh, Lynch actually approached Helen Mirren to play the part. Mm. And she actually turned him down, but she did give him the idea of giving Dorothy a child. As kind of a motivating factor. Yeah. And uh, apparently as well, Molly Ringwald was was considered to play the part of Sandy. Right. This could have been a very different movie. It could have been a very different, yeah. very different movie. I think Dennis Hopper, Laura Dern, Isabella Rossellini are, are so perfect in their roles. It's really hard to imagine anyone else. And what a life-changing choice, though, casting Laura Dern, because 
frequent collaborator of, of David Lynch. Oh, they became, you know, best friends in, in many ways after yeah. this. They they were so close after the making of this film. And of course, she would go on to play the lead in Inland Empire. Yeah. That's a, a pretty essential role for her, too. But, you know, I can I can understand why people would have been turning this down. I mean, I don't know why these people turn this movie down. But mm-hmm. imagine Lynch telling you about it, reading the script... I mean, I could just easily see people saying, this is a hard no from me. I'm not going to do this. Even after making the film and its success, I think Isabella Rossellini was dropped by her agency. Yeah. You know, they just did not did not go for it. Apparently also nuns back in Italy were praying for her <laughs> because of, <laughs> uh, you know, what she did in the film and, right. and the, I guess, the weirdness and, and brutality of the film. Uh, There's a lot of interesting stories about the making of the film, too. Lynch overall describes the making of Blue Velvet as a very happy process, Mm -hmm. like the polar opposite of Dune. Uh, I think, really, he he negotiated a situation where in return for a lower budget and a smaller salary, he was given artistic freedom and final cut. And, you know, with Dune, he was working with uh, Dino Laurentiis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they kind of came to an agreement where... Lynch would be able to do his thing, but he just had much less uh, of a budget to work with. And maybe that's I, also a problem because science fiction, unless it's really contained, science fiction usually needs a larger budget. Absolutely, for production design and yeah. effects. And yeah. yeah, Lynch really seems to demand more of a handmade quality. He really likes being involved mm-hmm. in, in actually crafting a lot of the effects in his films. Yeah. As for shooting, Lynch has said that he didn't arrive on set with his ideas fully worked out, which I found very interesting because mm. I'm always curious about how Lynch actually approaches the the making of his films and the shooting. I've heard from doing my radio program because um, I'm 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 a radio host uh, in the city. I've heard from doing my radio program that he's got this idea journal and that he won't really pursue a project until he's got a certain number of ideas. Right. Sort of down. And like you said earlier, they could be images. They could be any idea whatsoever. But he'll sort of have to have a certain number of ideas down before he'll pursue something. Yeah. And I think he's very intuitive about mm-hmm. how he shoots things. He's he's a sort of director who just knows when things feel right. And if they don't feel right, he'll keep working until it does. And he's very defensive, uh, too, of his ideas, which, you know, making films myself... It's something that you've really got to learn as a director when to really put your foot down and mm. just kind of defend, you know, how something should look or the fact that this sofa that this production designer has made is not right. We mm-hmm. need a different sofa because Dorothy Valens wouldn't have that in her apartment. Right, right. You know, and there are stories from the making of the film where Isabella Rossellini caught him making prop dust bunnies <laughs> under the radiator in her apartment. Yeah. Dust bunnies, which most likely no one would ever notice or see. Yeah. But for Lynch, it had to be there. It was an essential part of the world. Have you ever seen dust bunnies in a movie before? Unless it's like intense. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> incidental dust bunnies. Yeah. I've never, never seen those. It's a great band name, by the way. Yeah, that is. Um, he also kind of improvised certain parts of, of the filmmaking, which led to some really great discoveries. A good example of Lynch improvising during the making of Blue Velvet is when Dean Stockwell as Ben uh, sings or lip syncs Roy Orbison's In Dreams. Mm-hmm. As it was written, actually Dennis Hopper was originally supposed to sing the song, but he had trouble remembering the lyrics due to years of heavy drug use. It actually affected his memory pretty badly. Right. 
So, I wonder how much it affected his ability to learn lines. I mean, I would say a fair amount. Yeah. Um, if you can't remember a few song lyrics. Yeah. So Dean Stockwell, who's actually a, a personal friend of Hopper's, decided to help him rehearse. And so he started lip syncing the song. And stories differ on, on who actually brought in the light that he uses for this. Uh, you know, Dean Stockwell's claimed that he used it. Mm-hmm. There is a prop guy or a stagehand who said that he was actually asked to find something that he could sing with and and found this light that he suggested and put on set. Yep. Uh, whoever brought it there, it was something that was improvised basically day of. And so the script changed a fair amount, but it allowed for this incredibly surreal moment and is a, is a good example of how Lynch, by you know having artistic freedom and, and allowing to do things in his own way, really discovered a lot in the making of the film. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Is, yeah. is the Dean Stockwell lip syncing to, to In Dreams. And it's largely because of his total commitment to it. Yeah. And the way he just sort of just moves around with it too. That was one thing you asked me my reaction to it. The first time, the first time I watched it, I mean, I, it was almost as if I thought he was singing and I was surprised when he stopped singing and the lyrics kept on going. Right. Just because I thought maybe he was doing an impression of Roy Orbison or something. <laughs> he, was just, he just nails it. It's so bizarre to see Dennis Hopper reacting to that because yeah. he, he's singing along for a bit. Yeah. And then he just has this incredibly pained reaction, Yeah, you know, where he just like he clenches his teeth and like he's almost overwhelmed with emotion yeah, at like, that moment. He can't go on. He can't bear it anymore. And like what's going on in his head in that moment? And what what is the relationship between him and Ben yeah. in that movie? It's never answered. And yeah. it's an enduring mystery of the film that... You know, it's so compelling. What's going on here? Why are these guys lip syncing in dreams? Why why do they love this song so much? Right. And, you know, what is this weird apartment where Ben and these middle-aged women live in and, you know, hold kidnapped children in, <laughs> in the back? I mean, what's going on here? That's one of many sort of eccentricities about this, this script. And one of them is just as the Frank Booth character is leaving this apartment and Dean Stockwell, Ben, just says, I'll see you Tuesday, Frank. Yeah. Like, what What are you What are you doing on Tuesday? What's happening? Right. <laughs> and then it ends with that amazing moment where, you know, Dennis Hopper says, let's fuck. I'll fuck anything that moves. Right. And then just disappears from the frame. Yeah. Where they do this cut where everyone's just gone. Yeah. Uh, you might notice in the background, too, uh, Bradley Dourif, who plays Raymond, is actually playing around with this snake. Apparently, this was a dead snake that uh, they found on the street, and Lynch just decided to let him, you know, improvise with. Yep. Uh, that wouldn't be the first dead animal that would make its appearance <laughs> in the film. Of course, the robin at the end of the film yeah. apparently was uh, hit by a school bus uh-huh. around the, the time of filming, and they quickly taxidermied it up and, you know, connected some wires to it, and right. it made its appearance at the end of the film. That makes so much sense because that is just the strangest and fakest looking Robin you can think of. And then to find out it's a real Robin. Yeah. But then it just, there's a reason, there's got to be a reason why it moves so awkwardly. Yeah. It's it's almost uncanny in how fake it is. It looks stop motion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it is bizarre, but yeah. There you go, playing with uh, with dead animals <laughs> in, uh, in, in a movie. But you know what? That's interesting, though. It kind of goes hand in hand with the whole idea of exploring the seedy underbelly of suburbia. If you're trying to sort of expose 
you know, how gruesome and how dark and sadistic and twisted this perfect-looking suburbia can be, what better way than with a dead snake and a dead bird? Well, Lynch has this real fascination with with decaying organic material. Mm -hmm. You know, in a lot of his artwork, in in some of his personal sort of installations and, and art projects, I think decomposing matter plays a big part in it. It seems to to have this texture that fascinates him in some ways. Yeah. And I remember this story that that he told about his father coming to visit him when he was living in Philadelphia. And he took him down to the basement and showed him these displays he had set up with, I believe, dead mice or dead rats and things like that. And he said as he was driving his father back to the airport, his father just suddenly said, listen, David, never have children. (laughs) (laughs) So there's something very disturbing there. Uh, There's another story, too, where apparently Lynch had ordered a, a bag of flies, of dead flies, where would you even get that? I have no idea. But and if anyone knows, I'm not surprised it's David Lynch. <laughs> and according to Lynch, the when the delivery guy was dropping it off, he basically threw it on his doorstep and got the hell out of there because he was scared of whoever would, would be ordering this thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. What it's, a gruesome... <laughs> yeah. That's so, so gross. <laughs> there is a real fascination with decaying matter and, and you know, dead insects, dead animals that, that features yeah. throughout Lynch's work. I wonder what other weird stuff you could ask David Lynch for, or at least what other weird stuff he knows how to order. <laughs> Who like, knows? yeah, I can, I can get this, this finger for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if he's a gangster necessarily, but right. uh, yeah, he does have a lot of sort of odd, disturbing imagery in his films. Yeah. Um, so that was the making of the film. Then there was uh, the reaction to the film. Yeah, yeah. And the reaction to the film was a very polarizing. Right. Extremely polarizing. In large part, in large parts, it was polarizing in, in because of all the sex and the violence in it. Mm-hmm. Right? And 1986, this is the Reagan presidency. And I guess a lot of what Reagan was all about was just getting back to those American morals and stuff, right? He had a very absolute sense of morality. I mean, yeah. it was good and evil, and, and that, was that, yeah. was that. Right. And, you know, when you get a movie about a woman whose children have been kidnapped and is facing her abusive, you know, kidnapper, the mastermind behind the whole thing, and then you find out that she actually enjoys it when he hits her, it's a little weird. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> it's a little weird for any time, but maybe even at that time especially, it was just totally bizarre. Uh, but yeah, the, the masochism disgusted a lot of people. The, mm-hmm. the sadism, the masochism disgusted a lot of people. The sexual and violent nature of it disgusted a lot of people. It repulsed critics and audience members right off the bat. But at the same time, those who did like the movie, those who were pleased by the movie, defended it. Right. right. Those who liked the movie were really fervently quick to defend it and so the feelings were very strong on on both sides and it's easy to see how people reacted to something like dune and maybe Eraserhead was confusing at the time but none of those movies were quite so polarizing as blue velvet there's a lot of great stories mm. about the reception of this film i mean apparently audiences were lined up around the block to see it in new york city and los angeles there's a story of a guy actually having a heart attack during a screening of the film. Yeah. You know, going outside, having his pacemaker adjusted, and then going back to see it later. 
Uh, there were two guys who apparently almost got into a fist fight yeah. after seeing the film and agreed to settle their differences by going back in to watch it again. <laughs> and I love these stories, whether they're true or not. I, I, I love these stories. It's one of those things where when there's the hot new horror movie that's coming out and people, and people say, oh, people are throwing up in the aisles because they're watching this movie and you think probably not but I do like I do like hearing these stories even oh, if yeah. they're totally false uh, they also had a test screening which like you said was pretty polarized yeah uh, one response card from the test screening actually said David Lynch should be shot <laughs> uh, Rex Reed the film critic called it quote one of the sickest films ever made yeah Roger Ebert called it sophomoric satire obviously no fan of David Lynch at that point yeah, yeah. the National Review a conservative publication called it a piece of mindless junk but as you said it also garnered a fair bit of praise too yeah it was voted the best film of 1986 by the National Society of Film Critics, and it also won for Best Director, Best Cinematographer, and Best Supporting Actor for Dennis Hopper. It earned Lynch an Oscar nomination for Best Director and got two Golden Globe nominations for Best Supporting Actor, Dennis Hopper, and Best Screenplay for Lynch himself. At the Oscar party after the 1987 ceremony, Lynch says he was actually invited to hang out with John Huston and Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. And Elizabeth Taylor actually said that she loved the film and they even kissed, apparently. Oh, wow. So that that was a very memorable moment for Lynch. I, I think... He could have been husband number nine for her. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what his conversation with John Huston was like. I wonder yeah. if John Huston had watched Blue Velvet. Boy, talk about a fly on the wall moment. Yeah. I'd love to see John Huston and David Lynch. Like, that's just two of the most distinctive personal just voices talking. Oh, yeah. Boy, there's there's some real comedy gold potential in there for some sort of sketch. Absolutely. <laughs> John Huston and David Lynch talking. But yeah, it's interesting with all this this polarized reception that Lynch did get a a directing nomination at the Academy. And that goes to show that those in the know and those experts in the industry, those directors really did see something special in it. Well, its cultural impact and its impact on other filmmakers, I think, was much bigger yeah. than, you know, the box office or the critical reaction at the time would indicate. Yeah. And I think the film has only become bigger in reputation over time. And it, it really has kind of become a cult classic, which at this point, I don't even know if it's a cult classic. I think it's just a classic. I mean, it's the sort of movie where infamously Mark Kermode, mm-hmm. the British film critic, said... When he watched the movie, he was not good enough for the film to be able to appreciate it because he hated it the first time he watched it. Right, right. And only by going back and watching it did he realize, no, this movie is ahead of me. I wasn't ready for this film. And in that sense, it might be a movie that you need to sort of watch twice. You need to watch it again because if you're not ready for what comes at you, you know, you might be blindsided by it. But then if you go into it again knowing what it's all about, Maybe it could soften your opinion on it. Right. Because, and you know, it's, it's not something that we've really gone into detail about, but I did mention some eccentricities in the script, and this could be another reason why it would have polarized audiences, is the odd things that they say in this movie. Like, when Jeffrey Beaumont finds an ear in a field and takes it to the police, the guy opens the bag and closes it and said, yep, that's a human ear, all right. <laughs> and... What a strange thing to put in your script. And I can just sort of see people just just thinking it's just bad writing. There's so much in the the way the film is made, the the symbolism of the film, the the cultural and, and theoretical references that make it almost impossible to really get a handle on. Yeah. And 
there's so many ways you could interpret it. I mean, for example, The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. is very much an obvious touchstone for Lynch. I mean, that's where he got the name for Dorothy. That's the reason why he decided to have Frank Booth be from Kansas. Right. There's a subplot that was actually cut out of the final cut of the film where Dorothy has red shoes or red slippers, and one of them falls uh, in an, uh, a suicide attempt. Uh, Dorothy herself lives on Lincoln Street, and Frank Booth seems to be named after Lincoln's assassin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freudian references are everywhere. I mean, Dorothy calls Frank baby. He tells her to call him daddy. Moments later, he's calling her mommy. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a a Freudian analysis sort of wet dream. Right, and that comes after he's just huffed all that weird gas uh, in in, in that face mask. And listening to what we're saying, because I'm hearing myself talk and I'm hearing you talk, and we're talking about sadism and masochism and calling each other mommy and daddy and you can just tell why people hated this at the time. It's bizarre, and I think a lot of people are turned off by bizarre. Yes, but it's also intriguing. I mean, because there just are so many nods to popular culture. And, and you know, like, think about the film noir references mm-hmm. in the film. Dorothy really seems to kind of resemble a, a classic femme fatale at points. And there's this whole exploration of, you know, this underworld of drug dealers and criminals. It's very much part of film noir. There's also the the bizarre mixture of of stilted acting and corny dialogue that you mentioned before. Yep. But that's always juxtaposed with scenes of extreme brutality. Right. And I think this is what Roger Ebert in particular objected to. He really kind of resented the fact that Lynch, in his opinion, subjected Isabella Rossellini to moments of incredible humiliation merely as he said, as a counterpoint to an immature satire on small-town comedies. Whew, that's harsh. Yeah, for him, it was just fodder. It was just kind of a a, a way to to make the satire a little bit, you know, realer or a little bit rawer. But it wasn't really authentic. It wasn't earned. As well, I think there, there are just so many contrasts in the movie that seem pregnant with meaning. I mean... There's the good, innocent Jeffrey and the evil, sadomasochistic Frank, the the dark nightclub singer Dorothy and the blonde, naive schoolgirl Sandy. Blue versus red is a common contrast. The bright surface of manicured lawns and picket fences, along with the underbelly being eaten away by bugs. Yeah, and I think this is why the time that he grew up is is quite significant to the image he's portraying here. Because if he's growing up with this idealized version of the, the United States, whether or not it really existed, because I alluded to that, that Simpsons quote earlier, he's sort of showing you that either America is no longer this way or it never was in the first place. There's a temptation. I think the main sort of critical reaction to the film and analysis of the film has kind of reduced the morality of Blue Velvet to kind of a set of simple dualisms, you know, good versus evil, Mm -hmm. uh, light versus dark, the surface and the underbelly. And I think that very much ties into the way the film blurs the lines between the 80s and the 50s. There's this kind of temporal confusion in the film that's very interesting. I mean, there's obviously 80s references with, say, Jeffrey's pierced ear, the skinny tie he wears, the dream pop in the film, particularly the track Mysteries of Love. Lynch actually wrote the lyrics for it. Uh, But there are some very obvious 50s throwbacks. I mean, the cars, the dresses that a lot of the, the, you know, Sandy and her friends wear, uh, as well as as the 
decor of the homes themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they're very much a throwback to the 50s. They go into a diner a couple of times as well. That's right. Which, I mean, the 50s diner, that's that's classic. It's it's iconic. Yeah. And Lynch has said that he has a real fondness for, for the 50s, what he calls the, quote, euphoric optimism of the 50s. And you've alluded to this before. Right. This is very much a part of his childhood. Right. He'd have been uh, a child in the 50s, right? like 10 years old in 1956. I think he wasn't alone in this, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about the 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 '80s, I think there was uh, it was a time of peak nostalgia for the '50s. I mean, the top movie in 1985 was Back to the Future. That's right, a movie where a guy in the '80s goes back to the '50s and kind of revels in in nostalgia. There's also Peggy Sue Got Married, the Francis Ford Coppola film, and early Spielberg films like E.T., which are very much a marriage between, you know, kind of a 50s sensibility and and sense of the nuclear family, along with, you know, more of a Cold War concern or or anxiety. Right, right, right. A Cold War point of view on things. Yeah. Yeah. And... I think the 80s, as you mentioned, too, it's, it's also the era of Ronald Reagan. So there's there's very much this idea of old Hollywood, an old Hollywood actor kind of coming into the political sphere and really setting up this contrast between this idealized view of small town American life versus all the evils that are out to threaten it, uh, particularly the Soviet you know, empire at that time, but yeah. but also just, you know, secularism and and all these forces that would intrude on this idealized image. At the same time, though, I mean, all the threats in Blue Velvet are very much domestic, indeed, in the same town. I think this speaks to the fact that that none of these interpretations necessarily get at what makes this film so interesting. Mm -hmm. There's been a temptation to see this film as ironic, you know, especially the the kind of bizarre mix of of humor and, and obscenity and violence. Yeah. Uh, there's also kind of a temptation to maybe view this as postmodern. This is kind of just postmodern pastiche where you take, you know, high and low art and mix it together. You take all these different cultural references and put them in a blender and mix them together. Some have even claimed that this is a celebration of Regan era moral absolutism, you know, kind of mm. a celebration of, of uh, Ronald Reagan's sense of morality. And I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. I think there's something much more sophisticated going on here. If anything, I think it might speak to the sort of, I don't know, like you said earlier, social decay of everything, right? It was in the Reagan era where you started getting that image of a bunch of homeless people setting a garbage can on fire and standing around it. Right. You know? A friend of mine had a great quote where he said the the 70s was the last decade that felt like the 50s mm. and the 80s was the first decade that felt like now. Interesting. Okay. And I think that's perhaps what was in Lynch's head in a way. There was something going on, a transformation that he was aware of, even though maybe he couldn't articulate it on the level of, of sociological analysis or political analysis. He felt like something was going on. And I think... What's really happening, and the reason why he mixes together all these genres and references and contrasts, is to examine American identity as it was you know, undergoing transformation in the 1980s, suffering under the weight of decades of, of cultural baggage and unresolved traumas. And I think this is very much present throughout Blue Velvet. If you take a look at the contrast, for example, it's not necessarily good versus bad or, you know, light versus dark, the surface versus the underbelly. I think he's interested in the tension that's generated between them, 
when you have an innocent guy like Jeffrey up against this very damaged nightclub singer like like Dorothy. Yeah. Or when you have, you know, this beautiful surface of of idyllic American domestic tranquility with this really, you know, seedy underbelly. It's not really necessarily saying one is is good and one is evil. It's more just seeing what happens when you put them together, the tension that's generated between them. By putting them in opposition together, it opens both of them onto something new, uh, onto a kind of new world, onto something that it's hard to kind of articulate, but you can feel it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the characters in the film are really overwhelmed by things they can't quite articulate, but they feel. And I think the film's soundtrack really gets at this. I mean, there's this real mix between naivety and innocence and this really overwhelmingly sad feeling that something has been lost forever. You know, if mm. you take a look at the song Blue Velvet, for example, right, right. the lyrics in many ways are, are, are innocent. They speak to, you know, like a, a childhood crush or something like that. But then it has lines like, but in my heart there will always be precious and warm a memory through the years and I can still see blue velvet through my tears. Right, You know, right. the sense of there will always be something gone. Something yeah. has been lost forever. And you see this in, in dreams as well. The lyric, it's too bad that all these things can only happen in dreams. Something has been lost. And I can only access it through this, this dream state. Right. There's a real sense of longing. Yeah. And sadness. Almost unbearable songs. sense of longing. And that's probably what, what Frank Booth is is crying about. I mean, he's relating it to his own life, but we, the audience, have no idea what that could be. Although, maybe it's connected to his his obsession with mommies and daddies. Perhaps. It could be. I mean, he, he obviously senses the brutality at the heart of this contrast. And again, it's not because naivety is good and, you know, longing is bad. It's because the tension between the two generates this almost overwhelming sense of sadness. You know, this this feeling that just really tears him apart to the point where he's, you know, he's crying when he sees Dorothy Valens sing Blue Velvet. Mm -hmm. But also when, when Ben sings in Dreams, he's just kind of almost attacked by this feeling of like overwhelming longing an overwhelming pain that he can't quite articulate or get a handle on. Yeah, and Jeffrey even has a moment of not being able to articulate something when he's in the car with with Sandy, and he just can't really bring himself to talk about the stuff that he saw. Well, he you know he says, why are there people like Frank? Yeah, why is there so much trouble in this world? He, he's overwhelmed by this feeling that there's an evil out there, which mm -hmm. which is just so far beyond what he ever imagined. Right. He can't even go into detail about about it all. He's also overwhelmed by the realization that that he has the same sort of sadistic tendencies of Frank. I mean, mm -hmm. he ends up abusing Dorothy in much the same ways that Frank does. Right. At least in a much, you know, a much more limited scale. And at her insistence. But he's hitting her. Yep. And it's probably something he never realized he was capable of. Yeah. And, and in fact, he's reduced to tears upon kind of coming to grips with that. For Dorothy herself, I think she's probably more shattered than anyone by the events of the film. First, the horrifying experience of having her own masochistic desires exploited by Frank. Yeah. The same guy who's kidnapped her son and husband and who eventually kills her husband. I mean, imagine getting any pleasure at all from being, you know, sexually brutalized by this guy. It's yeah. got to be just shattering. And to put this on screen as well. 
Yeah. I mean, just the the audacity of someone to put that on screen. It was just so totally against American morals, you know? I think that's where a lot of the shock for me came from. Yeah. Just seeing what Dorothy's going through. And for me, really, probably the, the most powerful moment of the film is is after her final encounter with Jeffrey. When she mm-hmm. appears on his lawn, naked, bruised. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that moment where Mike, Sandy's boyfriend, maybe ex-boyfriend now, says, oh, is that your mom? You know, like <laughs> right. he's almost making fun of it in a way. Yeah. This incredibly brutal moment that we know was inspired by Lynch's real life experiences. And then she goes inside, they take her inside, and she's just desperately trying to get him to, to love her, to commit to something. And... They take her out to the ambulance, and she just starts screaming, I'm falling, Mm -hmm. I'm falling. Like, at this point, she has nothing left to hold on to. And this is also a reference to a scene they cut earlier on where I think she attempted to jump from a building, and Jeffrey rescued her. Oh, yeah, you mentioned with the red shoes that fall on the suicide attempt. And, you know, she really desires Jeffrey, but not in a really sort of rational kind of way. Right. And so he is now rejecting her because he's he's with Sandy Right. as well. I mean, that's kind of the last straw, I suppose. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And then we go to the end of the film, mm-hmm. and order is restored in one sense because Frank is dead. Dorothy is reunited with her son. Jeffrey and Sandy are together. The Robins have returned, and you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, one of them symbolically has a has a bug in its mouth, uh, mm-hmm. showing that the you know the underbelly has been. Uh, taken care of, that order has been restored and things are back to normal. Yeah, but, but it's still a weird looking bird. When it's so obviously unhappy. Yeah. You know, for a happy ending, it, it feels anything but. I mean, Jeffrey seems almost to be in a daze. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's not, you don't get a sense that he's genuinely happy in this moment. For Dorothy, I mean, we see an image of her being reunited with her son, but the the final expression that she bears on her face is deeply troubling mm. and deeply troubled. And then as we alluded to before, there's the fake Robin, which is so obviously fake that I think it really calls into question the reality of Lumberton itself. I mean, the white picket fences, the the firemen waving, going by in slow motion, the, yeah. the roses, the lawns, everything about this place almost becomes this kind of you know flagrant artifice by the end of the film. Right, but I mean... This uh, this image of suburbia and this image of the perfect home and the American dream in this case, it could be interpreted that it's all just an illusion, isn't it? Well, it is in a sense, but it's also an illusion that Lynch has genuine affection for. And I mm-hmm. think myself, you know, as someone watching the film, these things are objectively beautiful. Yeah. You know, it, it's not like it's something where once the illusion is pulled away, you see the truth and, you know, it, everything is is better. These are illusions that you want to hold on to, that you want to grasp onto. It's right. painful to lose them. Right. And that's why I, I said that line by Ned Flanders. I yeah. wish I lived in the America that only exists in the minds of Republicans. That's <laughs> right. Just the, that's the, that is the image that he's talking about. It's as if Lynch is saying that all the forces of this kind of tranquil, small-town existence are nothing compared to all the traumas unleashed in the course of the film. I mean, the brutality that's inflicted on Dorothy, yep. the way that, that Jeffrey's innocence is shattered, even Frank's sort of bizarre psyche and, and how he's constantly attacked by these, these overwhelming feelings of anger and sadness. 
there's a feeling that, that there's just such an overwhelming sense of trauma that no return to normality is possible in this film. Yeah, the, the experiences that they go through are, are just going to be changing their lives forever. Happiness is impossible. You can't return to normality again. Mm-hmm. And I think Lynch is saying that in the era of, of Ronald Reagan, American identity really started to become too enraptured by its own idealized version of itself to be able to deal with its own traumas, its own underbelly. Yeah. You know, the the iconography of small town American existence was so beautiful and so compelling that people preferred the flagrant artifice of white picket fences and this sense of moral absolutism to the reality of their own traumas. Right. And that's still something that goes on today, you know, in politics when there are still politicians who talk about the United States as this uh, is this city on a hill and the greatest country in the world and things when it has obvious problems. Very obvious you know? problems. That I mean, later with, say, Twin Peaks, The Return, these problems become so overwhelming that they actually upset the surface, yep. that the, the surface itself becomes the kind of decaying uh, underbelly, that yeah. that overtakes the surface. And I think that's what happens to trauma in many ways when it's not allowed to be expressed, when it's, when it's not resolved. There's this concept of the return of the repressed, a Freudian idea, which is that if you don't deal with repression and repressed traumas, they will come back in right. one way or another. Because you're not acknowledging them or, or being at peace with them in any, in any way. Right. Yeah. And I think with Blue Velvet, we see the beginning of this, you know, this buildup of trauma that eventually just breaks out in, in Twin Peaks and, and really Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, well, Highway too. Well, they're all connected, right? They're all yeah. connected because Lynch got the idea for Twin Peaks through Blue Velvet. I mean, right. the town of Lumberton and Twin Peaks are very similar. Twin right. Peaks is also a lumber town, and it also deals with things like the seedy underbelly of, of idyllic suburban life and things like that. Mm. And Mulholland Drive, he got as an original idea for a spinoff movie or TV show of the Audrey character. Right. All right. So all three of them are, in, in their own way, kind of a, a little trilogy. That's very true. And the kind of interest in, I would say, American glamour mm-hmm. and the idealized image of America, I think, plays a big part in Mulholland Drive, too. Yes. And that's also got a big nod to Roy Orbison as well through the song Crying. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. And overall, it's just such a such a stunning movie. And, you know, when we talk about our favorite parts and the thing that I remember just feeling so Lynchian is the way he frames this shot of... Um, the the guy in the yellow jacket who's been shot, but he's still standing up. Oh yeah. But he's kind of just wavering. Yeah. While you've got the well, you've got Dorothy's husband mutilated in a chair. It's just that that perspective. I just remember looking at that and just thinking that is such a Lynch shot. Yeah. And we talked about feelings, but th- this movie does make me feel a certain way. Right. And. It's not one that I can always fully fully describe either. And that shot is a good example of it too. It's almost uncanny. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing. Like why there's that guy in the yellow jacket has no business standing up right now. There are so many good scenes for me. It's hard to name just one. I, I would say one scene that sticks out for me is the scene where Dennis Hopper, Frank Booth, and his goons kind of kidnap Jeffrey for a moment and take him on a joyride. Yeah. 
And they take him out to this kind of industrial district on the outskirts of town. And Frank Booth proceeds to, to you know, put lipstick on him mm-hmm. and then punch him, like beat him pretty brutally. Yep. In the midst of this, there's a woman who gets up on top of the car and is dancing while Roy Orbison's in Dreams plays. Yep. And it's such a bizarre mixture of things. I mean, you have this incredibly brutal beating that's going on. Well, you have this kind of like middle-aged woman dancing uh, in probably a way that might have been cool for her in high school to a Roy Orbison song. It's such a uncanny mixture of things. It's not the most danceable tune either, is it? <laughs> it really isn't. Yeah. Just one of the reasons why it's so hard to get a handle on this. I mean, the the contrasts that are brought together are just oftentimes so confounding and so interesting. Yeah, and it's very clear why it vexed so many audience members back in the day. Is there anything about the movie that you still don't get or that you that's kind of been nagging at you? Uh, nothing really that I don't get, but I will tell you that the the second time I watched it, the masochism was a lot clearer to me than the first time. Right. So I really benefited from from watching it again, right, whenever that was. You mean Dorothy's masochism? Yes. Right. Right. Um, that was just sort of a lot clearer to me than the first time for some, for whatever reason. But that's why I maintain that Blue Velvet's a movie you need to watch more than once to fully appreciate. Oh, I think you have to watch it many times. Yeah. I, I would say something that really stuck out to me the more I watched the film is is how much Dorothy Valens is really kind of at the heart of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Roger Ebert, for example, has criticized Lynch's treatment of Isabella Rossellini, and others have criticized Lynch's treatment of women. In many ways, though, I think it's precisely because Isabella Rossellini is, is subjected to such brutal treatment, and the fact that her, her brutality is never really fully acknowledged it's constantly being undercut with these kind of corny jokes like, hey, is that your mom? Right. It, it almost makes her trauma much stronger because it's never allowed to be, to kind of be expressed and therefore resolved. It kind of lingers unresolved throughout the course of the film. Yep. And I think in many ways it, it forms the, the traumatic center of the film. Well, you know, when she's, after she's brought in, when, after she's been wandering around uh, naked and, and she goes into the house... The major concern becomes that Sandy has realized that they've slept together, and now it's about her trauma and her her feelings about the whole thing, rather right. than, hey, Dorothy's in a really bad way here. Yeah, she's never really acknowledged as as much of a person. I yeah. mean, she's really only valued as a mother at the end of the film, and I mean, to some extent, as an entertainer, mm-hmm. as a nightclub singer. And you know, some have argued that she is a, a much more compelling main character than Jeffrey himself. I have a quote from Matthew Ng where he says, quote, although Jeffrey is scripted by Lynch and performed by Kyle MacLachlan as a quintessential male hero, he is easily the film's blandest creation, a grown and guileless Boy Scout coerced by perverse suburban curiosity into situations of real menace that lead him to sincerely, verbally wonder why is there so much trouble in this world? But this purposely vanilla depiction of a technically centralized male lead primarily serves as an entryway for Lynch to introduce Blue Velvet's actual point of interest, Dorothy Valens, the knife-swinging, torch-song-singing enigma of the film, end quote. Well, in many ways, I think Jeffrey Beaumont is 
a passerby who stumbles into Dorothy Valens' movie. Yeah, like Dorothy right. Valens is the main character of her movie, but we're following the the hapless, naive boy who just happens to walk into it. And I think by presenting her kind of trauma from the point of view of Jeffrey makes this a movie that's much more kind of about the American way of dealing with trauma because it is kind of always mediated by this this sense of idealism, mm-hmm. by this naivety, by this supposed sense of innocence. It's never handled, you know, directly, full on. And I think if you had made a movie where it was very much about Dorothy Valens and her trauma, it becomes much more of almost like the psychology of being brutalized, of rape. Yeah. You know, it becomes much more of almost a, a sociological analysis of, of rape victims rather than how trauma itself tends to be kind of denied and, and repressed mm-hmm. in, in the American sort of identity. Right, I guess because she's really living in that seedy underbelly and right. Jeffrey's coming at it from the idealized version of it and that is the the lens that we are watching this movie from and then everything just feels a lot more alien and strange as a result. Very much so. Yeah, right. Well, it's just still maintains itself as a, a stunning classic. I think every time I watch it, I, I keep wondering whether it's the best movie of all time or like the second best movie of all time. Yeah, it really is a magnificent film. I think it's one of those where everyone involved, it might be the best thing they ever did. It's amazing that Lynch, after the the kind of failure of Dune in many ways, was able to to come together and, and realize how best to, to use his gifts as mm-hmm. a filmmaker. And he found the perfect vehicle in, in Blue Velvet. Such a passion project for him, too, to do things like take a pay cut just to have creative freedom, too. Oh, yeah. And the as you said, the, the team that he assembled, I mean, not only the actors, but also the some of the technical people like Frederick Elms doing cinematography, Alan Splett doing the sound. I mean, you can, you can turn off the, the visuals of the movie and just listen to it and mm-hmm. hear whole worlds of meaning there. You know, you and I, we're going to be back a lot more for future Now It's Darks. Yes, <laughs> but this will always be the film that gave us our namesake. Exactly. And uh, it's always going to hold a special place for us for that reason. Exactly. I'm very glad that we got together to finally do Blue Velvet. Indeed. In this Indeed. case. Hey, everybody, don't forget to like and subscribe to us. We are available almost wherever podcasts are available. And don't forget to go find us on Facebook at Now It's Dark and on YouTube also at Now It's Dark. And go like and subscribe to our videos and make sure that you get those notifications for when we post new videos. And we will also have a a YouTube visual essay coming soon uh, on an excerpt from this podcast. So if you're on YouTube, subscribe to us at Now It's Dark and follow us for, for more videos like this.